There are people that make the sad accusation that the Bible is somehow boring. And for those that would make the accusation that the Bible is boring, they haven't read the story we'll be looking at this morning because the Bible is far from boring. In fact, the Bible is incredibly colorful. Um, It's entertaining. It's engaging. In fact, there are parts of the Bible that you in today's culture would maybe put an R rating on. This is one of those. This story we'll be looking at this morning has assassins and bowel movements. It's quite a story. Let's dive in. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We'll find this verse repeated throughout the book. And even now, you just already sense the weightiness of the author. Again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, they did evil again and again and again. It's this repetitiveness. God would deliver and again, they would do evil and the side of the Lord, and God would deliver. And again, it gets monotonous. It gets grating to a degree, but we find this pattern. After Othniel died again, the children of Israel fall into this pattern of compromise leading to full-blown evil. So, as a result, the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And Eglon gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, and they went and they defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. The Moabites are an interesting group of people in biblical history. Descending originally from quite a salacious affair of Lot and and his daughters, the Moabites and the Ammonites were the descendants of Lot. They settled historically on the western banks, excuse me, the eastern banks of the Jordan River, just outside of the land of promise. In fact, our first main encounter with the Moabites is an interesting story we have recorded where the children of Israel under the leadership of Moses are coming to the land of promise and they are a force to be reckoned with. And the king of Moab, a a guy by the name of Balak, recruits this prophet, Balaam, to go and pronounce a curse on these people. And there's an interesting story that plays itself out. And yet God gives a great victory even at that point over the Moabites. The Moabites would always be around, but they were outside of the land. Well, our story here is that in response to here being the disobedience of the children of Israel, God decides to use this man Eglon, who's the king of the Moabites, as an instrument of judgment. So they reside outside of the land of promise on the western, what you might think of present-day Jordan, 
And yet they now make a skirmish into the promised land. They cross through the Jordan and they take one of the strongholds that existed as kind of a defense mechanism to any uh, invading armies. This would have been the city of Palms, which goes by another name, the city of Jericho. And if you recall within biblical history, some 60 years before this, as the children of Israel finally entered the land of promise, they encounter this stronghold, the city of Jericho, with its high walls that seemed to be impregnable, a city that had its own defense mechanisms. I mean, this was the first immediate challenge for the children of Israel as they went to take the land that God had given them. And if you recall the story, Joshua doesn't exactly know what to do. This is his first test as the leader and the commander of the Lord's army, might be known as Jesus, comes to him, gives him marching instructions. It's not your typical battle plan. They send the musicians out. They march around the walls. They do this for a few days. They blow the trumpets. The walls come tumbling down. And a great victory is given to the children of Israel. Jericho was given. The city of Palms was given to the children of Israel. God had given a great victory over their enemies. And this city commemorated it. And yet 60 years later, what a tragedy that it's now fallen back into pagan hands. That the Moabites come into the promised land and they seize this particular uh, part of territory. This was, by the way, a very beautiful piece of land. It was in the very fertile aspects of the Jordan River Valley. It was great for food. It was great for, uh, it had great water resources. Uh, In fact, this was the area, the northern portion at least, that when Abraham and Lot had grown too big and they had to split, that Lot saw a more favorable land. This was the city of Palms, and he chose to go that direction, ultimately settling in the city of Sodom. And yet here we have the children of Israel in this constant pattern. They're doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and God can't stand by and allow this to continue. And so the Lord strengthened the hand of this man, Eglon, who's the king of Moab. And he recruits a couple of his his brothers, the Amalekites, the Ammonites. And they come in and they subdue the land. They take back the city. They extend their dominion. And the children of Israel served Eglon for 18 years. I mean, this is a significant amount of time where they're in subjugation and servitude. Maybe not fully enslaved, but they would have to pay tribute and tax. This is not the the plan that God had for his people. This is not the life that he had delivered them from Egypt to enjoy. No, this was far from enjoyment. You see, it was because of sin that God allowed judgment. Why? So that his people would repent. So that they would come to their senses. So that they would understand that this isn't the life God had for them. So they're under the thumb of this man, Eglon. So the children of Israel, verse 15, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. What an interesting detail. Kind of unique. There's some color here. This man, Ehud. 
He's a Benjaminite, but he's left-handed. And this will play a role as the story unfolds. Now, there's a couple different theories in regards to the left-handedness of this man, Ehud. There is some belief that the translation could be yielded, that he didn't have use of his right hand, and thus his left-handedness was the byproduct of having a gimp right arm. Thus, he was actually right-handed, but through some injury or accident or birth defect, he didn't have the use of his right hand, therefore, he had to be left-handed. And that is a strong possibility, and the text leads credence to the fact that the man had some deformity. He was handicapped, so he was left-handed, by necessity. That's one theory. There's some weight there. The other one is that there's a unique genetic trait that we find present within the tribe of Benjamin, and that is left-handedness. This is the second such instance or description of the Benjaminites having this unique propensity to being left-handed. There's another passage where we're told that there was a whole group of Benjaminites that were really good at the sling. They were left-handed. And they could make the rock bend in ways that you know, were unconventional in that day. And thus, that this was a genetic trait and that Ehud was left-handed. Regardless, being left-handed was not a great thing in ancient cultures. In fact, the reason that even if you're left-handed today, you will, you will shake hands with your right is because developing from ancient times, everyone just kind of universally had this agreement that we would take care of our sanitary business with our left hand so that you could always trust the right hand. So you always be suspect if someone comes up to shake you with their left because, wait, wait, wait. we're all in agreement. You should be using the right to shake hands or to eat the left for other things. There's a small percentage of the population that's left-handed. I know some of you are left-handed, so let's just be real. You're weirdos. God made us all to be right-handed, and somehow you came out weird, left-handed. In fact, you can study a lot of the left-handedness and some of the cultural norms and and the ideas of left-handedness. They're they're unique. Regardless, within this ancient culture, being left-handed was not seen as a a benefit. It was seen as an oddity. It It was strange. Now, we had this guy, Ehud, weird, and we're told he's a Benjaminite, who's left-handed, and God is going to raise up this guy to deliver the children of Israel out of the bondage of Eglon, king of Moab. should also be pointed out that Benjamin, the actual word Benjamin, means son of my right hand. So there's already a little bit of irony that the son of my right hand is left-handed. Not exactly the guy you would have picked out of the group to be the deliverer of Egypt, uh, 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 the children of Israel out of Moab. It's odd. This left-handed man from the tribe of the sons of the right hand. Anyway. So we have him. He's left-handed. Continuing through verse 15. And by him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So we're going to read this story. The scene gets set. God's already called Ehud to be the deliverer. God has seen the plight. He's the one that instigated it. He hears their groaning. He's going to raise up a deliverer. He's going to pick an unlikely deliverer. A left-handed man will go with the fact that he's also handicapped. 
He's left-handed, but he's also handicapped. He's the last person anyone would choose to be a deliverer, especially in the days of hand-to-hand combat. And so Ehud and probably a coalition of people, they go to Eglon, king of Moab, with a tribute, which was for the most part a tax. This was probably a yearly activity, a yearly thing that, that, that was done. It was to go kind of suck up, to butter up the king, to try to find some favor. So they send tribute, and Ehud's part of this. Verse 16, we're given a little side detail, that Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged, so it had two sides. It cut both ways. And the length was about a cubit, which was a, roughly 18 inches. So this isn't just like a Swiss army knife. This is, this is a pretty good-sized mini sword. It's a good dagger, double-edged, two-sided, sharp point. And then we're told that he fastened it under his clothes. So he has a concealed weapons permit. He's okay. He fastens it under his clothes on his right thigh, which makes sense. Because if you're left-handed and you're going to conceal a sword and you have some deed that's going to be done, and a surprise attack, you would be taking your left hand to your right hip to pull out the sword. It would be very, especially a sword of that length, it would be cumbersome to put it on your left hip. Now, most people would put it on their left, right? Why? Because most people are right-handed. So even right now, we have kind of an interesting wrinkle in the story. This left-handed man is putting a dagger in a place where it's concealed. It's not a normal place. Even then, if he's handicapped, he's even less suspect of anything nefarious. He's not much of a threat. So Ehud brought the tribute to the king of Moab, Eglon. And then I love the detail. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. This is the only person in all of scripture that is described this way. Understand, Eglon wasn't chubby. He wasn't even just fat. He was very fat, a very fat man. Every single Bible commentary that I listened to over the last two weeks about this passage, I'm not kidding, from different denominations across the board, universally set your mind's picture of this man by putting up on the screen, which I'm not going to do, a picture of Jabba the Hutt. I would like you to think more of Pizza the Hutt from Spaceballs, if you know the movie. This man, Eglon, was fat, obese fat, blubbery fat. They didn't make an acorn stair lift to carry this man from the first to the second floor. So Ehud brings this tribute to the fat king. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, that being Eglon. But Ehud himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So he said, Eglon, keep silent 
and all who attended him went out from him. Now, they present the tribute. That's done. They leave. They get down just a few miles away to Gilgal, which is right where uh, you would cross the Jordan River. Gilgal is the place in which the children of Israel originally entered the promised land. This was the location where the Jordan River split in two. The Ark of the Covenant went. The people followed. And they erected there, in, to, to commemorate that event, these memorial stones. So this was a holy place in Jewish culture. Ironically, it was desecrated by the Moabites, who also erected their own memorial stones. So Ehud, he leaves giving tribute. He goes down to this holy place. And he decides he's going to go back. He's got a word from God, which would make sense. He went down to Gilgal, gets a word from God, whether it's his God or Eglon's God, doesn't matter. He's like, Eglon, I've got a word for you. And Eglon is excited about this. Again, he, he senses no threat. They've just given tribute. Now he's going to get some type of a wonderful prophecy, some nice word of encouragement. He, he's, he's pleased with it to the point that he doesn't want anyone else to hear it. This is something special for him. So Ahu comes in and he sends out all of his protective detail, his counselors. This is a word from God to me. It's not for anyone else. And so we find a situation now where Ehud and Eglon are alone. So Ehud came to him. Now, he, Eglon, was sitting upstairs at a cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So Eglon arose from his seat. So you get the picture? This very fat man gets up, no doubt towering over this little Jewish guy who's handicapped in his right, He's unsuspecting. He's non-threatening. Again, the king has no problems with a private audience. He doesn't feel a threat. So this man is towering above Ehud, and it's in this moment that Ehud moves into action. Verse 21. So Ehud reached with his left hand, and he took the dagger from his right thigh, and he thrust it into Eglon's belly, Verse 22, so that even the hilt, which is the handle, went in after the blade, I mean, that's quite a joust, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. What an encouraging passage of Scripture. So again, the scene. Ehud, I got a word from God. Eglon's like, oh, ha, 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 and he stands up. Give me this word from God. And he takes out the sword with his left hand, this double-edged 18-inch sword, and he rams it into the man's belly. He doesn't pull it out. He's like, what? It just disappeared because the man's fat rolls came back over top of it. So that Ehud can't get the blade out, but nor can Eglon. So Eglon now has an 18-inch double-edged blade up his gut. And we're told that his entrails came out. Now that is a very sanitized description 
of what the original Hebrew articulates. A lot of different ways you can translate it. The poo, the bile, the dookie. The old King James translates it just the dirt. That the dirt came out. Now exactly what this bladed edge perforated, Eglon is down for the count. Verse 23. Then Ehud went out through the porch. So they're on the second floor, this cool area. No one else is in the room. He has killed this man. He's left him in a pile of his own feces. So he goes out through the porch and he shuts the doors of the upper room behind him and he locks them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. And to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said to themselves, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So the, the logic of the servants, when they get up to the room, they find the doors are closed. They're like, that's a little odd. They go to open it. Oh, the door's locked. That's also a little strange. Their immediate reaction is, oh, the man's taking care of his needs. He's using the restroom. That's how you would translate this. Oh, the man wants a little privacy. He's on the throne. Now, why else would they believe that he's on the toilet? Keep in mind... The dirt has come out. They can smell the dirt. So the stench emanating from this closed room indicates, it substantiates at least a probable notion that the man's on the toilet and he's doing a number two. And so they're like, we'll give the man time. He's on the throne. He's got his iPhone. He's scrolling through Facebook videos. Verse 25, they waited till they were embarrassed. He's taking a really long time, guys. And man, the stench is not getting any easier to tolerate. Eglon, bro, the breakfast burritos. It's the smell. They're embarrassed. He still had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened it. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. Now, while all of that's going on, where is Ehud? Well, he's making his escape. Back verse 26, Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the stone images, that's Gilgal, and he escaped to Sarah. Now it happened that when he arrived, that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. And he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him. This left-handed, likely handicapped man kills the king. He rallies the troops. We're going to go into battle. Victory is ours. So they went down after him. 
They seized the Fords, uh, probably the 250s, the F-150s. There were no Chevys at this point. They seized the Fords. I thought that was a good joke. I'm just going to let that hang there for a moment. Of the Jordan leading to Moab, and they did not allow anyone to cross over. Basically, what's being described is a very brilliant military tactic. So sensing, hey, the king has died, chaos that follows, in all likelihood, the armies of Moab that are there, what are they going to want to do? They're going to want to, at least until they can regroup, get home. Like, so they're retreating out of foreign territory that they've taken. They want to get back to the land of Moab, figure out what's going on, regroup, figure out succession plan, maybe then go back. But what Ehud does is he rallies the troops, he blows the horn, and they cut off the escape routes. That's what's happening here. So in the chaos, the confusion, they recognize there'll be this migration of, of people trying to get out of the land. This is where we can cut them off, the fords, the passes. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. It's a bad translation. It's also that these were fat men, stout men of valor. (laughs) They were men of valor that had gotten fat. Again, for 18 years, they've lived high on the land. They They haven't had the battle. Their king is is Jabba. So you have these fat Moabites trying to get out of the land, and they get cut down. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. That's two generations. They had peace. They experienced the life that God, for 18 years, It was rough. It was frustrating. They were in subjugation. They were in servitude. They were under the thumb of of a wicked pagan man. And yet God delivered them. And then there was peace and there was rest. They could enjoy the land as God had called them to. Ehud. Now, as we look at this story and bring forth the application of it, from the Jewish mindset, I love the fact that there's comedy to it. You know, for 18 years, there was no comedy. This was serious. This was terrible. Everyone had stories of what life under the Moabites was like. And then as the years progressed after the fall of the Moabites, and that generation was articulating what took place in the story, they had all heard of Eglon how mighty a man he was. And yet the story that gets told of their deliverance is something that the little school children would laugh about. This left-handed man sticking a dagger in, the dirt comes out, God gives this victory. How fun. And we should understand that when we look at Ehud, he is the most unlikely of deliverers. This is the second judge. Othniel, man, Othniel was the right choice. He was the guy you would have picked for such a time. He was the guy, descendant of Caleb, part of a family of faith. That dude had already gained victories. 
So we need a deliverer. Othniel's right at the top of the list, even though he's old. And yet if you're picking a deliverer in this time period, where the Moabites have conquered, and you've got Eglon, this big king, and, 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 and their rule is hard, Ehud's the last guy, handicapped, left-handed. And yet God raises up the most unlikely deliverer to free his people. Now, from a practical standpoint, understand, if God can use Ehud, he can use you. Well, Zach, I'm not very strong, nor was Ehud. Zach, I've got this part of my life that's totally handicapped. I get it. Zach, I'm a weirdo. I'm left-handed. Like, you can come up with all of the reasons why you're not the right person to be used by God for whatever task that looks like. But understand, it's often those very reasons that you present why you're not the right person that God's like, that's exactly the person I'm choosing. How so? Because you see a great victory, and who gets the glory? It's God. Like Ehud can't, can't, can't claim glory unto himself. Everybody looks at what, what Ehud does and it's like, wow, that's incredible. It had to have been God. Raising up the most unlikely person to do an amazing thing. The power of God and his, his faith. A calling, a word. The faith to take a step out in his weakness. God's been teaching me a lot about weakness. Last two years of my life has been a lot about weakness. Not just to be in a hospital and to get sick, but to leave that hospital without the functioning use of your legs or your arms, your hands, your fingers. And for anybody that's been around Calvary 316 before that, you knew that when I was prepping Bible studies, I was fully scripted. I would type out the entire Bible study word for word, beginning to end. In fact, if you go back into the archive at c316.tv, you find all of the scripts. That was released before the Bible study, so you could follow along. And I'm in the hospital, and, and they tell me that I don't have the function of my arms. I'm like, no kidding. Shocker. And I'm like... Well, will I ever be able to preach again? Even when I gained my breath back and I, could, I knew I could talk. It's like, well, if I go to try to do a Bible study the way I've always done a Bible study, if I have to wait for that in order for God to use me for what he's called me for, I might wait forever. And even in the hospital, I had a conversation with the Lord, like, what are you trying to teach me? And he said, Zach, stand behind the pulpit. If someone has to turn the page, so be it and be weak, and be scared, and be out of your comfort zone, and let me meet you there. And that first Sunday, that Easter, I teach with my arms. Not sure if you're aware. Not only could I not stand up, I couldn't move my arms. I mean, I sat there and just talked the scariest thing I've ever done. Lord, am I prepared enough? Am I ready? But the Lord was like, no, you're not. But I got you right where I want you. You know, Ehud could have come up with all kinds of reasons 
Lord, I know you want to deliver your people, but I, I, there's a lot of other good candidates. Why me? And the Lord's like, it's because you're not a good candidate. So that I can work through you and I'll get the glory. Ehud. There's another application that we can take from this text that's a bit more allegorical in nature. If you turn many pages to the right, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. We'll start with verse 11. We read, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, what rest is he talking about? If you go back to the previous verses, the author of Hebrews is discussing Joshua and the rest that we have in the land, enjoying the life that we've been delivered to have. So in the context, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. God has given us a rest. Let's enjoy that rest. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful, and note this, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Again, we're looking at the story a bit allegorically, taking away an application. Eglon is about as big of a picture of the flesh as you can get. A very, very fat man. The dude's fleshed out. He's got so much flesh that his flesh has flesh. His fat lobes have lobes. He is a picture of the flesh. He's lethargic. He's got control. He consumes. And he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And sometimes it's the big flesh in our lives that rob us from the life that God has for us. The spirit and the flesh. And Eglon is this picture of of the flesh. The flesh in Israel was robbing them of the life God wanted for them. And what was the remedy? Well, the flesh needed to be rendered dead. It needed to be attacked. It needed to be slain. It needed to be put in its place so that there could be peace and there could be rest. And Ehud, we're told, does what? What is the instrument that he chooses? It's not just a sword. It is a double-edged sword. And he takes that sword and he sticks it into the flesh and the dirt comes out. The muck comes out. The impurities are expunged. Cleansing. You guys kind of picking up the direction we might be heading with this? You know, 
when you're looking for an allegory, it has to be really obvious. This is one of those. Problem of the flesh, the sword goes in and the dirt comes out. A double-edged sword. Not just where it pierces into the physical realm, but it pierces down deep into the non-material you. Understand, this is what the word of God does. It's just not a book of information. It is a living book that is powerful and it reaches down beyond what you can see and what you are to who you really are, that soul part of you. And it transforms and it cuts and it pierces. So often, Counseling appointments can become very simple when we diagnose the core issue and take the Ehud approach. Oh, you're having this particular problem, or you're dealing with this sin, or this is what's going on, or this is what's wrong, or this, that, and the other. And, and almost the very first question I'll ever ask someone, if I'm sitting down to deal with the muck and the dirt in their life, is a simple question, how's your, how's your, how's your devotional life? Like, like, are you spending time in God's word? How much time are you spending? Are you spending daily time in God's word? Are you putting your thoughts onto God? Are you meditating on God's word? How, like, where is God's word in your life? Are you making time for it? Are you studying it? Are, are you digging into it? Are you living in it? Are you breathing in it? Where is God's word and the priority of your life? And almost always it's like, well, yeah, I've just, I haven't been doing that. I come to church, you know, kind of every other week. You know, but I'm not like, I'm just not. Well, shut up and read your Bible. That's the immediate Ehud advice. Like it's an amazing thing how many of your problems will find a simple solution in a simple act of obedience. Where you just stop complaining about your problem. All right, Lord. I, there's a low lot of dirt inside of me, flesh. And I know that when the sword goes in, the dirt comes out. It's not more complicated than that. It's all kinds of muck and trash. You want to get rid of that? Stick the sword in, see the muck come out. The sword goes in, and the dirt comes out. The sword goes in, and then the dirt comes out. If you don't get it yet, the sword goes in, and the dirt comes out. So if you're looking at your life, and you're like, Lord, I want, I want the life that you created for me, and that Jesus died to provide me, life and that more abundantly, and I'm struggling with this flesh, and I'm struggling with these things, and I've got these temptations, and I feel like, I feel like I'm drowning in my own dirt. What do I do? I stick the sword in. Ehud, a double-edged sword, and Eglon dies, and the dirt comes out. The Bible talks a lot about the washing and the renewing of our mind and always places it within the context of God's word. And again, it's one of those things where you're like, well, Zach, I don't understand how I, I'll just, I'll, 
how reading these stories, I don't understand how reading these stories is going to do this thing in my life. Try me. I find that more often than not, if I open God's word and I'm reading a story, a random story, but I'm just being faithful to do it and I'm just in it. And I start like, Lord, this is what you tell me to do. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. I need more faith. I need the dirt out. I need to get washed. So I'm coming to your word. It's the only sword I got. Cleanse me, purify me, use this, speak to me. And I open it up. There are times that it has nothing to do with what I'm reading that the Lord starts speaking to me. Where he starts impressing things upon my heart. Now, sometimes it is related to what I'm reading. But there's something about it. Again, the way that Hebrews describes the word of God is that it has the ability to pierce and divide. It's a double-edged sword. Hey, there are times where the word of God, man, when I'm down and, and out, man, it lifts me up. And there are times where I'm filled with pride and it cuts me down. It'll cut both ways. It is a double-edged sword. But it has the ability to go beyond my practical problem into the depths of my soul, my real issues. You know, so much of your, of your problems are often just manifestations of deeper ills. A lot of the times the things that we're like, we're trying to fix in our lives are the wrong things to focus on because they're just the fruit of a rotten tree. We try to fix this. Hey, have you ever, I've got this problem and you fix it and then something else pops up over here. You're like, well, wait. And I, it's like whack-a-mole. I hit it here and it pops up over here. I try to hit it here and it pops up over there. It's like this constant cycle. It's because I'm treating symptoms without addressing the disease. And it's the word of God that has the ability to cut beyond bone and marrow and to get deep into what your real issue is. Ehud, unlikely man to be used by God. We should take heart. On the flip side to it, there's a lesson. For when the sword goes in, what happens? When the sword comes in, when the sword comes in, we'll look at one more judge and then we'll wrap things up. Verse 31 of Judges 3. After him, so there was peace for 80 years. After him, after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. He also delivered Israel. And that's all we get. I can't wait to meet Shamgar. First, if I had another child, I would want to name him Shamgar. What a strong name. Interesting, Shamgar doesn't appear to be a Hebrew name. And we're, when we're told that Shamgar, the son of Anath, we don't really have Anath referenced in any of the genealogies or list of names. There's an actual interesting argument that Shamgar might not have even been Hebrew. And yet, he's used by God and this act of deliverance. And we have no information. We don't know what precipitated this. We know it's the Philistines. We don't know the timing of it. We don't know what provoked Shamgar to act. We do know Shamgar is a farmer. 
We know that because of the instrument in his hands, that he has this ox goad. So oxen were used to pull the plow through a field in order to drive the ox as well as tend to the plow. Sometimes it would get roots and stuff would get caught in. You would have what was called an ox goad. It was about a six foot, seven foot long pole with a real sharp end at one where you could poke the ox. And on the other was like a metal spade type thing that you could use to clean out your plow. It was an ox goad. At some point, at some time, Shamgar's out in his field just doing his job. He's a farmer. The plow, we're planting. And he's moved to act. Shamgar kills 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. The dude doesn't go back home to get his proper weaponry. He's in the field, he's got his overalls, he's got his big sun hat, he's got his ox goat, he sees something going down, he's like, I gotta act. 600 Philistine men, and the man's only equipped with an ox goad. And yet he moves into action. I mean, this is, you can imagine like some serious Game of Thrones action here with Shamgar. And he kills 600 men. I haven't killed one. I can't imagine how much energy goes into one, yet alone like 600. He just keeps going and going and going. And he delivers Israel. That's all we're told. Shamgar. I'm reading one commentary who's like addressing each of the judges with their own chapter. And everybody just kind of like breezes through Shamgar. And like I'm reading the first page of this chapter and he's like, Shamgar deserves his own chapter because he's only given one verse. It's one page. (laughs) It's a one page chapter. What can you say about Shamgar? I think there's a reason that Shamgar gets placed right here with Ehud. Ehud, the unlikeliest judge, he's handicapped, he's left-handed, he's unable, but God uses him. And Shamgar is very similar. And this is, he gets called by God in his job while he's he's just faithfully being obedient to do what he's done every day. God calls him. And Shamgar, I'm sure, was like, hey, God, this is great. I'll act, but, you know, you want to gear me up a little? And God's like, no, I'll just, whatever's in your hand, if it's in mine, it'll work. Well, it's just an ox goat, God. It's good for ox. I don't know about warfare. If if I'm calling you and it's in your hand, all I need is what's in your hand. You know, when Moses was being called by God at the burning bush, he had he tried to weasel his way out of it. He's like, well, you know, I mean, I ain't got anything, God, like to deliver. He's like, well, what's in your hand? He's like, it's a staff. It's no longer yours, it's mine. You've been leading sheep with that staff, now you'll lead a nation. The same staff that he throws down and becomes a serpent. Same staff he holds up and parts the Red Sea. Just an ordinary staff. Nothing special, nothing amazing, nothing unique, but it was in God's hand now. Ehud 
unlikely. He's used by God because he was in God's hand. You, unlikely. But if you're in God's hand, you have everything you need. Shamgar had an ox goad, and he delivered Israel. If you're in God's hand, maybe God can use you to deliver your family or some friends. Again, there's no strength inherent in you. It's just whose hand you're in. So, Father, Lord, we just let that thought 